0: On this episode of Business Interrupted,
1: you can't force an organization to be the culture you want, but you have to build in your mind the respect from those individuals so they understand and appreciate the culture of resilience that you live in. And they may not all be there every day, but at least they understand how passionate you are and they acknowledge you're doing an extremely important thing for the organization.
0: Business as usual is challenged every day. It's not about if disruption occurs, it's when. On this original show from Castellon Solutions, we're hearing from the world's best leaders as they get into the specific situations and topics, providing insights, advice, lessons learned, and resources so you can be ready for when business is interrupted. I'm your host, Brian Zawada. Ann Pickren is the Chief Customer Officer at OnSolve, a firm specializing in helping their clients manage critical events. With over 20 years of experience in IT and its application across business resilience and crisis management, Ann is uniquely positioned to share insights into the world of business continuity and resilience management. In this episode, we sit down to compare notes on what it takes to achieve success in business resilience and critical event management. Along the way, you'll hear why fleshing out the details is so important and how the cartoon character Gumby is the perfect mascot for the way organizations should think about resilience. But first, let's hear Ann's rules for success in critical event management.
1: Practice makes perfect.
0: So why'd you put that as number one?
1: I, you know, I think it's true because a lot of times people think of that as the uh, and all, and I always tell people that how you practice is what makes you perfect in a crisis. And if you're not exercising and flexing those muscles during your exercises to the point that it hurts at times, then it's not going to really help you that much along the way. So I always use the term perfect practice makes perfect recovery.
0: But not perfectly scripted so that you can have that pain to learn from.
1: That's exactly true, and and I see people just as examples. They will run their communications test. We're doing our quarterly test. They they might announce a test. We're doing our test on Tuesday at 2 p.m., so you'll all be in your office, at your desk, at home, wherever it will be. Please answer your phone and respond when it rings, and then they're all excited when they get 98% response rate, right? And then the event hits, and we know it happens after hours when people are not there, and Things do not go as they expected.
0: Many executives oftentimes look at our profession and they're not exactly sure what we do. And sometimes when you really do put them through the kind of that, that exercise or that practice effort, it makes it real, makes it concrete. And I think that goes a long way as well.
1: Absolutely. Some of the best exercises I've seen were the ones that are extremely both realistic, but also um, engaged all levels of the organization. And they were well thought out, well planned. They were definitely scripted in that sense to a degree from the people who were putting on the exercise. And they got extreme value from it and they learned where they failed and they, you know, didn't follow the plan, didn't follow the culture. They stayed as the culture of the company. So it's uh, great to catch all those things through that process.
0: All right, my turn to throw myself out there. I think in today's world, it is incredibly important to build what I'll call a what-if capability. And what I mean by that is, number one, having incredible insights at your disposal that you can mine to be able to understand downstream implications of whatever is thrown at you. Having a really good understanding of what I'll call substitutes. And what I mean by that is, I lose X... What is the substitute to allow me to continue to meet ultimately my my objectives, and I'm gonna add a third part of kind of what if which is having the team the competencies that are the people can really pivot quickly they can kind of forecast or think about the future to understand what's coming at them later on. so what if that's number one on my list
1: a great one i I never thought about, it. and you're gonna see that I state it a little bit differently, but the same thing which is what you said about having that, that mindset of being the constantly know there's going to be something different thrown at you than you ever planned for. That it's never going to fall in place like you wanted it to or presumed that it would. And one of the things I think sets really strong professionals in this crisis management world and resiliency world are those who have that capability to stop under the cool and calm of all of the stress and anxiety that's going to be on your shoulders and start thinking about what's what if because you're absolutely right it won't play out and you become at that point in time the Really, the consultant to your executives, the advisor who's going to sit there and say, "No need to panic. We know what's coming downstream. Let's focus, you know, and leverage some of those skills that you have around the ability to be flexible through any event." And and I think I've seen it play out more times than than not in either exercises, but even in real life events, that it never happens. Exactly the way you planned, and if you can't pivot on a dime, but keep in mind the focus of those downstream impacts that you mentioned, then you're not going to be—you're uh, not going to be comfortable in the role, and you're not going to be that advisor, that trusted advisor that you need to be inside your organization.
0: The best plan never survives contact with the enemy. You know that old adage. I think that's what you're getting at there. Good. All right. So far, we've just been agreeing with each other. Give me your number two.
1: Having executive level support and engagement is absolutely necessary for optimal success in your program. But there's a downside to it. <laughs>
0: that, that, that there is. Go for it. Let's, let's hear your thoughts on that.
1: It is a very a standard. I called it, as we would say, one of the universal truths that we have to deal with. But it comes as you would expect with what I think are obligations on our part to ensure that we gain that executive support, which means it's not a matter of simply saying, I want to seat at the board or I want to seat in the C-suite or whatever. You have to earn that right to have added value to that organization to the point that they invite you into that role. But I think it's very, very key. It's on us as professionals to build to that executive rapport and get the culture of that organization aligned. And it's not a simple step of saying I'm going in at the C suite or a CEO. It really is working your way up through demonstrated value and um, organizational alignment that will bring you to the table. And I think it will bring us to the table, Brian, not only. As those individuals during a crisis, but also for the fact that we will know so much about the collaborative interactions and workflow processes inside a company that we're valuable in business process reengineering initiatives where we can design that resilience in. But more importantly, we can also help people think about the, the key workflow uh, and how that works across an organization. So, yes, I always say that executive level support is very key to understanding the maturity of a program, but I'm also going to say it represents the maturity of the individuals guiding that resiliency program in the organization and realizing a little bit of that ability to understand your talents, how to use them, and how to speak in that executive world and how to show value.
0: So let me give you my number two because it's so closely related to what you just brought up. I used two words for my first one was what if, and this time it's the so what. I think resilience management programs absolutely need to be have the ability to answer so what. And what I mean by that is everything from all right, well, is this something that's really going to really hurt us, hurt our customers, hurt the marketplace? How bad? What level of response do I need to employ as a result of this? And probably since you brought up the behaviors and the attributes associated with the people leading programs like this, perhaps one of the things we always need to talk about is that not all risks are created equal. And sometimes we get into that chicken little syndrome where The sky's falling with everything coming at us, but they're not always all that bad. Some are much worse than the others, and we need to make sure that we're employing an appropriate response. So give me your number three.
1: The plan is the foundation of organizational resilience.
0: I'm going to moderately agree, but it might be how you define plan. So go for it. Let's hear it.
1: I think the plan has become, in many people's eyes, that one that has every complete step that you take. It has everything that might happen. And even though people will talk about doing, in the old days of all scenarios, planning, I've seen plans that were, you know, 150 pages long. I couldn't even find where the declaration notice was to how do I escalate to declare this you know, a crisis inside the organization. I once did a consulting engagement with a uh, network broadcasting company, a a regional provider, not one of the big players. And the main thing after I went in, the main thing after we did the assessment of risk was a lack of strategy. We spent far more time on their strategy. And once we had their strategy locked in and had the general manager of the uh, station agreeing, we were able to build very succinct and short plans because they're not going to tell you how to switch broadcasting to another facility, et cetera. Those are going to be your technical crews and do that. So the plan became... The least impactful, the foundation of what uh, their plan was based on were identification of the major risk and then the strategies to offset those.
0: Let me tell you why I moderately agree. Number one, I do believe that there are many, many strategies or sets of actions that are difficult to memorize, and I think plans are extremely important for that. Number two... I don't care who you ask if you ask any executive they'll they'll like they like to shoot from the hip in many ways, but in reality, when you get into a real event, it's a safety blanket. They want to make sure they didn't forget a thing. It helps build confidence. but I also think that you can't predict everything you can't have everything scripted, and sometimes plans are the best evidence that planning took place and so I agree with you that. It encapsulates or should describe those substitutes that I mentioned or the strategies on how to return to business as usual as quickly as possible. And so that's why I think plans are extremely important in many ways. So it helps deliver that repeatable response whenever possible.
1: Absolutely. One of the first things that ever happened to me after I came into this uh, line of business is one of our customers that we had... Helped My team had helped build all of their business continuity plans, we will say. And they'd gone through the business impact and risk assessments first and then gone through the planning effort. And shortly thereafter, they had to declare into our facility for business recovery. And I followed our sponsor around for a week. And I always was like, how are we doing? How did our plan work? And he said, the details in your plan were nice because they made me prepare ahead of time. But he pulled out and in his back hip pocket, he had a couple of pages that were just rolled up. You could tell from stress, constantly wringing those two or three pages. And he opened it up and said, this is all I've used all week long to manage through this process. And he opened it up. It was our table of contents. So he had the detail, never had to reference it, which was great. And he had check marks and notes to the sides of each one of those items. So I think the plan, the intent of the plan, is really to make us think through and just feel comfortable that it's both flexible but has enough content if we need to get to it and it's the only thing we you know, have available But more importantly, the strategy we have and that checklist that gives us the kind of uh, guardrails for where we're going to go with our recovery, I think is very
0: key. All right, let me give you my number three. And uh, this one, I will confess, is the one that's most ambiguous. And that is a focus on affecting culture. I had a guest on my last season for Business Interrupted and she had mentioned something that i thought was really important from an advice perspective to resilience professionals which was be very deliberate be very disciplined hold your organization accountable and we talked a little bit about culture and we talked about how build that that mentality of bend not break that was one thing and i think it was my next guest we used the words resilience by design being very intentional on you know, thinking about designing, you, you know, your organizational strategy so it is resilient by nature. And in many ways, I think we're that, that role or that our programs are oftentimes the role that allows us to see the forest through the trees, be that, you know, that organizational conscience, if you will, when it comes to topics like this. And uh, not that we're chicken little, but that we're, we're being intentional.
1: So first of all, I'm going to date myself or any of you who have grown up from many years ago and happen to know about a character that sits on my desk, and it is a little Gumby Flex. I was just awarding this as my Gumby Award to one of our top performers in my group because of the idea that you have to bend but don't break, right? Right. And have that flexibility that is required. Now, going back to culture, if you can't match the culture of your organization to build a resiliency program, you alone are not going to change that culture of that organization or enterprise, company, division, whatever it is. Uh, You may influence their ability to be better at what you're doing around resilience, but you're not going to change the culture. And you can't force an uh, organization to be the culture you want, but you have to build in your mind the respect from those individuals so they understand and appreciate the culture of resilience that you live in. And they may not all be there every day, but at least they understand how passionate you are and they acknowledge you're doing an extremely important thing for the organization. But again, it's kind of matched the culture, you know, in in some places, that's what I always say, that when we talk about, you know, executive participation in exercises, some places you'll get it, others you're not. and. You know, how you're going to work through that and being able to be mindful of that and what drives the culture. But it also is with your team. And if you're fortunate enough to have team members or you're just one individual trying to save the world and keep your organization truly in business in this way, you have to be able to establish a culture of collaboration and open communication and fun. People have to know how passionate you are every time they see you, how excited you are, but also how willing you are to help them.
0: So let's change it up for a moment your your perspectives on critical event management and what you're seeing with your customers as they they really prepare to respond really well. what's some of the keys to success with being able to manage through a critical event?
1: What I'm seeing that's bringing people and to critical event management. It's not simply the ability to respond and react when something happens. It goes back, Brian, to your so what? So it really starts from the risk side. What are the events, not what might they be, but what are the events and things that are happening that have a potential to disrupt my key business processes? And knowing those and how you get the earliest available warning on those as you possibly can, so it starts in risk intelligence. And we and we always talk about. And I think it's something that is really picking up with our customers is speed, relevance, and usability. So whenever you're looking at risk, you're trying to see how fast you can get the information, but Making sure it's relevant and it's not just this massive flow of useless information in which the one key piece gets lost inside of that. So the key of relevance to is back to your so what. If something is going to happen, what is the impact it's going to have to me and downstream? What do I need to do? And usability of that information to be able to take it and apply it into the resilience program that you've built. And organizations are looking for that seamless workflow that says, I know probably what's going to happen, but I don't know every type of event. But I do know where my critical employees or supply chain or our facilities or assets, wherever they are, where those are by location. So I can typically watch for developing events to places that are relevant to me and then leverage that right into how do I communicate, share that information, protect the life of individuals or the assets of the company or whatever. And then that's when we flow into the critical communications. But where I see organizations maturing more so than they were. 15 years ago, we introduced a software product and another company that had an incident management piece to it. And people didn't have the discipline to want to utilize that in a way. And now they're stepping up. So sound and, and growing organizational resilience is tied to knowing the risk, being able to communicate, but also the incident management component to be able to automate that process because people collaborate not with paper these days, but with all their technology, typically their mobile devices, and to be able to communicate through those, collaborate, share tasks, make assignments, and have clear audits of those things from the time the risk was identified all the way through the hot wash at the end of the event or events is very clear. So to kind of summarize that, I think Onsaw was right in the middle of a great evolution to having people think more about this holistic view of constant flow of information, early warning of risk and developments, and then the so what of what do I need to do behind that.
0: I think that's a perfect pairing if you've modeled your organization and you understand what it takes to deliver end to end a business service or a product or service. And if you take that information and combine that with that threat and risk intelligence, you can really do some, you know, incredible things. And I really liked what you said about 15 years ago, there wasn't the discipline to use an incident management platform. Well, today in many ways, think about the situation. Cyber event takes out your business as usual ability to collaborate. And I've seen this over and over again, even an exercise last week, you know, we take away teams, we take away a lot of the, you know, the devices that are used for communication. Well, how do you do it in that, you know, what's the substitute? And I think that's key. And and the other part of it is, is God knows we've lived like this the last few years, Um, the multiple events taking place at the same time and having people that have to juggle that just so, so difficult uh, without those capabilities. And so, yeah, I think this. I think your points about critical event management combined with our top three lists really do overlap quite a bit.
1: You know, one of the things that I think has changed in the industry as well: crises are no longer asynchronous. You don't get to do one and manage it and then walk away. And-
0: Nor do they stop after thirty days. That old planning <laughs> assumption, right.
1: as we now know, after years of going through uh, where we've been, but. It, watching people have to simultaneously deal with a pandemic outbreak and and business shutdowns in a retail market, and having wildfires impact some of their facilities, tornadoes, hurricanes, and then put a little technology outage or two on top of that, and see in a period of the first twelve months of the pandemic, this gentleman. Had 12 ongoing events he was managing and try to keep that straight without leveraging some technology to allow you to communicate and collaborate and keep tasks separate. Because now your plan is, it's strategies over here and here. And it's what's, you know, what's the next uh, whack a mole that you've got to come up and address and what's going to hit you next. And, and I think that's so much the value that people now see. Because now, based on the impact of those things, people are held more accountable for how they live through those events and recover through those events. Their board, their shareholders, their employees are all, all have a voice at the table. Why was this not handled better you know, in those cases? Or was it handled to the optimum performance? And being able to go back and audit to say, We identified this risk on this day at 2.05 p.m. The first communication went out at 2.07 p.m. to ask people to evacuate and to be able to track that across everything that happens in the event, the incidents and tasks that were performed, the adjustments, you know, the magic, it's always going to change, right? The adjustments that had to be made on the fly and capture all of that, I think, is the world that we live in now that, was never that complex as it is today
0: and for those that don't know you and wanted to follow up how what's the best way for them to reach you
1: best way is an and that's p i c k r e n at onsol dot com or look me up in LinkedIn and uh, watch some of the things we post there and you can always communicate there. I'm pretty active.
0: Thanks for listening to Business Interrupted. I'm Brian Zawada for this Scenarios episode. To get more insights and resources, head over to CastellonBC.com and follow along wherever you get your audio.